0: Many years ago, when the planet Krypton, home of a race of supermen, exploded in space, the sole survivor was an infant boy, who came to Earth with powers and abilities far beyond those of mortal men. Look, up in the sky, it's a bird, it's a plane! No, it's now playing Superman movie retrospective series.
1: Man, this is gonna be good!
0: Hosted by Stuart. I just don't believe a man can fly. Arnie. You're a genius. An naughty genius but what the hell, nobody's terrific, eh? And Jacob. I tell you, that man's a miracle. And these three new arrivals bring destruction in their wake. These people have such powers, nothing can stop them. Now that you know, I think you should know it all. Tell me everything, starting with crystals. Can you read my mind? If so, you already know this podcast will contain detailed plot spoilers and mild language. Holy skunk sweat! Listener discretion is advised. Bring it on! There are questions to be asked, and it is time For you to do so. Here in this this fortress of solitude, we shall try to find the answers together.
1: Today we're discussing Superman 3 starring Christopher Reeve. Hey, he gets top billing over Richard Pryor. I'm not sure he should. Jackie Cooper, Mark McClure, Annette O'Toole, Annette O'Toole, woo, and directed by Richard Lester. I'm Arnie, co-host of Now Playing. But if I go crazy, will you still call me Superman? <laughs> oh, nice. I got it. that's a Three Doors Down reference, right? Yep. Okay, I got it. Stuart in L.A.
2: This is Jacob, your host of Steel.
1: And this is it, guys. <laughs> this is where the worm turns on Superman.
3: Yeah, I always remembered it this way. Superman 2, a big childhood favorite. I don't remember ever really liking Superman 3. I only remember seeing it once. I mentioned last time it was a viewing in theaters with you, Arnie. I think it might have been our second
2: movie that we ever saw together. This is a film, I've seen this more than once, all as a kid. I have not seen this film since I was a child. I remember liking it back then. Most of it because of Richard Pryor, not because of Superman, though. I do have some memories of Superman in this film. But it's one I've never returned to because of its reputation. It has the reputation of being such a stinker, I never bothered revisiting it because I just assumed it was really as bad as everyone was saying, even though I remember liking it as a kid, but I was a kid then. Why would I like it now?
1: And me, I loved this movie when it came out in 83 because it had Richard Pryor in it. And I was a huge fan of The Toy, which came out the year before.
2: Right there with you. I saw this as a
1: continuation of it.
3: And- <laughs> I was always more partial to Bustin' Loose, but whatever. We're saying the same thing. Richard was big. He was bigger than Christopher Reeve at this point. Christopher Ree was in Monsignor.
1: Did anybody ever sit through that snooze fest? <laughs> no. But for me, I remember really liking this. It was Superman meets The Toy. What more could I want? But yeah, I... Didn't watch it for a long time. I just kind of didn't watch Superman. After Part 4 came out, I never looked back. I'd catch one of the early ones once in a while. But I caught part of this on a TV viewing just a few years ago where I half paid attention. My thought was, well, this isn't as bad as I'd expected it to be from what I've read. But this is my first time really watching it in about 30 years. And... Whatever you think about Richard Donner, like the man, hate the man, like Lethal Weapon, like Lady Hawk, whatever, you could hate everything he's ever done. But here you get it. Here you get what Richard Donner and his friend Tom Mankiewicz have meant to the Superman legacy. Because this movie is written by David and Leslie Newman, who wrote the last two scripts that Tom Mankiewicz came in at Richard Donner's behest and rewrote to add more seriousness, take out the Telly Savalas who loves ya babe lines, and really give it a more serious feel, and a realistic feel. And the first film, all Donner and Mankiewicz. The second film, so much of it had been done by Donner and Mankiewicz, that there was no escaping their influence, no matter what Lester would do. But here you have it, had Donner never been invited to take part in Superman, This is what the creative team, pre-Donner, would build. Wow. It does put it in
3: perspective. And no disrespect to Richard Lester. He was an innovator of a sorts. I associate him with the Beatles. He made the Beatles' first two movies. And those were just largely music videos with a lot of wacky comedy bits. That's what the guy was known for. He wasn't a storyteller. He was a filmmaker. He probably never should be given a project like this. It's beyond the scope of what he was able to do. I certainly don't feel like Superman, the slapstick comedy, is where I thought we were headed after the last movie. It's kind of surprising, coming back to this, to find out how deeply entrenched and farce it really is. I mean, I knew Pryor was in it, and I knew Pryor was going to do what he does and turn everything into a stand-up bit, but... This whole movie is really farcical. It's probably, hopefully, the silliest movie of the franchise.
2: And being a comics fan, I'm not going to say whether right now if this is going to work for me or not. But this film is not a tone that you would not find in the comics. There is definitely a silly side to Superman. And I think if you didn't have Donner coming in making it so serious, well, what was their model? Is Batman 66. And Lester, I think, is much more drawn to that model than Donner coming in really maybe revolutionizing what we would think of a superhero film by doing a more serious, a more mythical, a heavier take.
3: So I got to ask, behind the scenes, nobody ever went back to Donner. No one tried to bury the hatchet and say, you know what? The movie's turned out good. We like you. Here's your money. Come back, please.
1: No, not at all. Not happening. They did go to Mankiewicz. They tried to get Mankiewicz, and Mankiewicz said, no, I'm sticking Team Donner. But absolutely not. We will find for Superman 4, when the Salkins... Finally part ways with Superman, they did try to return to Donner and Mankiewicz, but for Superman 3, they were happy with Team Lester. Superman 2 made tons of money, and they were looking to cut costs again. This one, they weren't even going to film in England, they'll film it up in Canada, they'll bring in Richard Lester, they'll do it cheaper and do it better.
3: They're half right. (laughs) But this was, a lot of people didn't come back for this, or at least that's the way I remember all of this, is, yeah, no Hackman, no Brando, we barely get a Margot Kidder. They really threw out a lot here. I don't know if it was intentional or not, but it's everyone but Christopher Reeve, really, is kind of thrown out from the last two movies.
1: There's a little bit of back and forth on the Margot Kidder bit. Margot Kidder and her supporters claim... That she was very outspoken on Team Donner when Donner was removed from Superman 2. And so, she claims her role here is punishment for siding with Donner. That's the folklore on the internet. Now, what the producers say is the Lois Lane romance story was done. It ended. And after the last movie, I'll bring this up this movie, is it possible for Superman to have any human relationship? We've seen the course of that. It's pretty much over. He chose his power over earthly love. I don't see how any romance could ever take place, because it's going to lead right back to that chamber. So, I see their point. Now, the other stuff I've read is Margot Kidder had some substance abuse problems. That's never stopped some actors from starring in movies, but yeah, that
3: could have been a problem.
1: I'm not saying she wouldn't have starred more, but... We saw how she was looking in Superman 2. I see how she's looking here in Superman 3. Maybe the producers were thinking we need a more stable leading lady. Maybe one more reliable with call times. I don't know. I'm speculating. You didn't want to see her in that string bikini in
2: Bermuda?
3: (laughs) I can go with it. I can honestly say, as a child, all of this was part of probably why I didn't take to this movie, was how much of what I liked about Superman 2 got tossed out. but. I'm up for it now. They want to start over again and move from Metropolis to Smallville and give us Lana Lang instead of Lois Lane. All right, I'm ready to see what that yields as an adult. Didn't work for me as a kid. I'm ready for it now. But it does seem like an odd choice for the sequel. Why go this
1: route for Part 3? It wasn't their first choice. Initially, the producer... Pierre Spangler had a treatment that involved Brainiac,
2: Supergirl, and Mixapitalic. Who? Mr. Mixopitalik, a pixie from the fifth dimension. You gotta make him say his name backwards to get him to disappear. Oh my god.
1: I'll say it three times if it'll make never appear in any of these
2: Superman movies.
1: Please tell me that's not gonna be in Man of Steel. It's not in Man of Steel, but he is a classic Superman villain. There was going to be this weird love triangle where Brainiac had gotten Supergirl and raised her as his daughter on a foreign planet, but yet he was in love with Supergirl. They come to Earth, Supergirl falls in love with Superman without knowing their cousins. There's a lot of stuff we could have really deconstructed in that film, but we don't get it. Instead, they see Richard Pryor on Johnny Carson... And Carson's like, so what have you been up to? He's like, I saw Superman. He was flying. Richard Pryor had a whole Superman bit that he did on Carson, and so they're like, well, let's just get him. <laughs>
3: Wow, that's all it takes. Okay. Well, you know what? It kind of feels that way. It kind of feels like this is an improvised movie based around Richard Pryor. In fact, if I were doing the plot summary, I'll go ahead and let you do yours, Arnie. But I don't (laughs) know that I would bring up Christopher Reeve very much at all. This feels like a movie totally designed to capitalize on Richard Pryor's man-on-the-street goofiness. And Superman, I just don't see that he does anything too super this time. But maybe I'm wrong. Arnie, go ahead and tell him what he does. No, no, I think I'll just focus on
1: Richard Pryor if that's okay. (laughs) Yeah, that's about right. In fact, I'll focus on his boss, Ross Webster, CEO of a large company with fingers in every area of life. He uses these monopolies to increase his personal wealth for he, his sister Vera, and the blonde bombshell he keeps around as his psychic nutritionist, Lorelei. But his wealth is peaked and his attempts to corner the coffee market are stymied by resistant Colombians. But Ross finds a way to even greater fortune. Gus Gorman, a new employee at Ross's company, Gus is a computer genius who stole thousands of dollars from the company by taking the fractions of a cent removed from every employee's paycheck and adding it to his own. Young listeners are probably thinking, hey, that's what they did in Office Space. But in Office Space, they said, hey, that's what they did in Superman 3. Rather than turn Gus over to the police, Ross uses Gus's computer genius to hack computers around the world, including the Vulcan weather satellite, which creates bad weather and ruins (laughs) Columbia's coffee crop. Woo, that stinks. Okay. Since you laughed, I'm going to say it right now. Pierre Spengler said in the commentary, prove to me a computer cannot do everything you've seen here. We have viruses (laughs) and all this other thing. Show me a computer
3: can't
2: do it. To be fair, it's 1983 and people don't know much about computers.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I think the computer in Demon Seed could do it, but that was about it. But Columbia is saved by Superman, who flies there in between romancing high school sweetheart single mom, Lana Lang, back in Smallville. All right, let's talk more about Gus. (laughs) (laughs) Ross realizes Superman must be taken care of. And then Ross will corner the world oil market with Gus's hacking, so Gus uses the satellite to determine the properties of kryptonite, and Ross's lab builds some to kill Superman. But part of kryptonite is an unknown element, so Gus, improvising off of his pack of camel cigarettes, where's the Marlboros, replaces the unknown with tar, and presents the green rock to Superman. The fake kryptonite doesn't kill Superman, but it turns him kind of nasty, so he stops helping people and becomes a bit of an asshole. With Superman no longer in the do-gooding business, Ross starts to take over the oil market, having Gus order all the tankers to wait in the middle of the Atlantic. When one boat refuses to follow the computer's orders, Lorelei seduces Superman and convinces him to strand the last oil tanker. But some words from Lana's son cause Superman to have a guilty conscience and after an internal struggle shown on screen as Clark versus Superman in a junkyard battle, the good Superman returns and starts to track down Gus, Ross, and the others. But they're holed up in a desert mesa where Ross has built Gus a supercomputer that can do anything, including kill Superman. But Gus revolts against his boss, tries to save Superman, and the computer goes nuts. My baby wants to live! and even taking Ross's sister Vera and turning her into a scary-ass cyborg minion.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Nightmares!
1: Superman prevails with the help of some acid, we'll talk about it, and he lets Gus go free while he turns the others over to authorities, and as Clark continues to date Lana, who has moved to Metropolis to work as Perry White's new secretary. So, yeah, not a lot of Superman in this plot summary. Not a lot of Superman in this movie. It more becomes Superman is a background force as we tell this story of, I'll call it out right now, Lex Luthor wannabe, businessman Ross, and Gus the computer hacker.
3: Now, did they ever have hackman in the script was this ever intended as a lex luther adventure that when negotiations broke down they just said all right who's kind of like hackman but cheaper
1: not that i can tell nothing was ever mentioned about hackman except he was busy on other films i read it as he wanted money right we know about the Salkins' love to hold on to a dime
3: sure And I'm not sure that this movie would be improved by Lex Luthor, but Ross is such an obvious copy. And all of them, his dopey sister is kind of like Otis, and the blonde bombshell Lorley, that could be Miss Tessbacher. Truly, with minimal erasing, you could retcon it so that this is the original trio of troublesome villains.
2: I'll say it. This is a better Lex Luthor. I'm not saying the acting is better than Hackman. No, Hackman owns that role. I'm saying the portrayal of a Lex Luthor character, this is a much better Lex Luthor. Like, he's an industrial businessman that's taken over. That's what would happen with him in the 80s in the comics is, forget about, like, being a mad scientist. I'm just going to take over all commerce. And he eventually even becomes president of the U.S. in the comics. But I like this. Yes, we're not going to call him Luthor, but this is a Lex Luthor role. And... I like it. No more land schemes, no more weird alliances for Cuba and Australia with supervillains. Like, just a straight-up evil businessman.
1: So this Ross character, we are right in assuming he was made up for this movie. There's not a other
2: businessman that Superman fights in Metropolis? Not by this name, at least. There might be other businessmen, but no. All of these characters, besides the ones that are returning and Lana Lang, made up for the movie. There's no Gus Gorman. Maybe they've retconned him into the comics, but I don't think that has happened.
1: I would love to read that comic. I'm just going to go there right now.
2: I believe there was a comic adaptation of this film, but not in the DCU universe proper. The new 52 needs a Gus Gorman.
3: (laughs) Does it really? I did love Richard Pryor in the early 80s. My parents allowed me to see all of his movies, and I did, and I laughed a lot. But he is not well served by being in a PG family superhero movie here. They start with him. Much like the first movie started with Brando, they start with their true star here with him doing some lame bit in an unemployment office where he is not allowed to curse. You've taken away his one superpower. Richard Pryor (laughs) can work four-letter words to send you into a tizzy, rolling on the ground laughing. Take that away from him and just dead, just floundering. He doesn't know what to do here. He does not know how to make his brand of comedy work in this environment. It's clear in the first scene, and it'll be clear all the way until his last scene where he's trying to catch a bus out of a coal mine. It just does not work for Richard Pryor to try and be Richard Pryor in a Superman movie.
1: I say you are so wrong, sir. You are so wrong, because we already mentioned the toy, and Richard Pryor had to clean it up. He'd just gotten a $40 million contract For movies, and you weren't going to get all those on R-rated and X-rated, increasingly vile films. Yes, I, too, watched him growing up. My parents let me watch Silver Streak. Love it. And I loved The Toy, a PG-rated, prior, neutered film. And here, you put Richard Pryor in an unemployment line, which is where we saw him in the toy, he might as well be playing the exact same character in my mind. Once he was done on Jackie Gleason's playground, then he went back to the unemployment line and saw a matchbook cover that said, be a computer programmer. To me, it's the exact same character, the exact same brand of humor. I have seen the toy again recently. It holds up. Richard Pryor works on PG level. Not as well, not as funny, but he works.
3: He worked for me on Silver Streak. I'll have to take your word on the toy. I haven't gone back to the other ones.
2: Yeah, I haven't gone back to the toy recently. I did love that as a kid, but Brewster's Millions, which came out a couple years after this, another PG, maybe PG-13, but I remember seeing that as a kid, enjoying him. I don't think he has to be dropping four-letter words throughout this film. A lot of his comedy does work here. Yes, it is a neutered comedy, but I enjoy his performance.
3: Okay, maybe it's just the character then, because what we're expected to believe is that this shifty guy who's basically trying to get out of not working... What we're expected to believe is just sort of getting by on life without any goals is just happening to be a naturally brilliant basic computer programmer that's better than anyone else in the world. A world populated by Steve Jobs and Bill Gates, by the way, and he can outthink them just by taking a computer class that he saw on the back of a matchbook.
1: He's a savant. That's how I take it. I kind of like that. Now, we never see him interact with Bill Gates and Steve Jobs. We don't know that they exist in this world. We'll discuss exactly how computers exist in this world. But I'm not thinking he's the smartest guy in the world with computers. He's just smarter than his teacher at the matchbook class.
3: But they play it like he doesn't even know what he's doing. Like, he just clicks some things on the keyboard and all, before he knows it, money is spitting out of an ATM machine. They don't necessarily want you to believe that he's a genius, because it would curtail the comedy. The whole point is that he's a man on the street, an everyman, and to make him
1: a savant is going against the grain of his comedy. But he's able to make things happen that he wants to happen, but it's more instinctive than knowledgeable.
3: I guess that's the way we're to understand it. Yes. If you accept the character, that's what it is. He tries things on a whim and they work out brilliantly to his advantage that he does land this computer job and that he does figure out how to siphon off all the half cents into a second paycheck. It's a funny scam, but again, I'm wondering, why is this in a Superman movie? How is Superman going to fly in here and challenge this corporate criminal? Just (laughs) does not seem like a setup for what we need in a Superman film. Not only is it not about the character, but it's not even the right tone.
2: Well, Stuart, maybe eight minutes of slapstick comedy during the opening credits is how you get Superman into this film. It is one of the few things I remember about the movie. Yes, I retain this memory. I remember penguins on fire and eyes and faces. And I remember this being the first half of the film. <laughs> like, it goes on so long. And it only goes on for about eight minutes. But thinking back as a kid, I remember this being half of the film, Clark Kent bumbling around Metropolis while all this stuff goes on.
1: I'm sorry, but the Williams score for Superman is so tremendous that every Superman film should open with the Williams score in space. It should all have the overture like the first one did. Just give us more Williams music. Doing it like this, not a good choice. Now, they were still paying by the minute for TV. So actually in the TV version of this, the credits are in space. And then you just get this bumbling without the credits.
2: So you don't get the Superman 3 over, knocked over phone booths? This is really weird. After having space god and space Jesus, here is the symbol of Superman, like, turning into his powerful self, the phone booth, knocked over on the ground.
3: Yeah, it was Lester. What can you say? He did show signs of this in the last movie. It's evident now what were some of his broadest strokes in Superman 2 with the guy on the phone being blown down the street and still talking on the phone. Well, imagine if the whole fight scene was that. This is just a Rube Goldberg of slapstick. Again, it's something that he developed with the Beatles. Those weren't actors, so they just improvised bits and they got away with
1: it. But what can I say? This ain't the Beatles. And it's all because of Lorelei, who is Ross's bimbo henchwoman, and she's just so hot. She walks down the street, and things catch on fire, and people get pies in their face, and phone booths knock over. And even Superman doesn't realize he's being photographed changing in a photo booth from Clark Kent to Superman
2: while looking right at the lens. Do you see her in that snow bunny suit later on, Arnie? I don't blame people for losing their line of sight. Hey,
1: I'd rip open an oil tanker for two. I'm not saying I wouldn't.
2: Not all of this is bad. I like the photo booth joke. I
3: love the penguins on fire. As a kid, it was the one visual that I really just remember laughing out loud, and then growing strangely quiet for the rest of the movie. But. <laughs> you know. They need some kind of opening. They need a big opening to get us. Last time, we had some flaws with Eiffel Tower terrorists, but that at least had higher stakes. And there was a vibe between him and Lois that I like. But here, Jimmy's there. He's trying to get a hot dog or something. But who cares about <laughs> Jimmy? We haven't brought up Jimmy. We're never going to bring up Jimmy. Jimmy is worthless. <laughs> worthless character that has no relationship to clark or superman that's interesting so yeah there's just nothing to hold on to except if you just love physical comedy and a lot of this stuff a mind falling on gumballs a blind man grabbing a painter on the street and drawing wavy lines that's a mr magoo joke truly again (laughs) i ask is this really what we want from superman
2: This is going to be a common theme throughout this film is I don't mind the comedy, but then Lester just keeps pushing it. It's like someone takes that joke and they just go a little bit too far where it stops being funny. And I could have gone with some of this stuff, but eight minutes? Here's the problem. It's not that it's eight minutes. It's that it's
1: 125 minutes. It just starts with this eight minutes. And yes, the jokes that are funny actually involve Christopher Reeve. What makes the photo booth joke work is because he makes really earnest faces as the transformation occurs. It is a wonderful frame-by-frame of what we've seen in fast motion in previous movies. What makes a lot of this work is who's involved. But when you get flaming penguins and a car hitting a fire hydrant, almost causing the man inside to drown, it's just too much. And I just finished watching Superman 2 last week. So to go from Superman 1 to Superman 2 to this whiplash-inducing, truly, if I didn't know what I knew about behind the scenes in Wicked Lester, then I would just be stunned. And it just continues.
3: We don't need Superman for the problems that they're showing here. We needed a problem big enough to require him to fly in and save the day. But truly, why isn't someone on the street breaking the window and helping this man with his flooding car here? (laughs) All that Superman does is fly in and tear the roof off of a car that is improbably filling with water because he drove over a hydrant, opened the door, break a window. It just doesn't really require a man from space to get involved.
2: The truly crazy thing is there's a bank robbery earlier on superman doesn't show up to stop that they're like firing guns nah but this guy who yeah you just need to throw a rock through the window (laughs) shows up for that
3: the robbery is what we should have focused on laura lee being hot could have been one gag in the string of it but the fact that her beauty caused all of this accident it's just not right it should have opened with a bank robbery and they should have finished with superman bringing those bank robbers to justice
1: Yeah, Lester had the right instinct in the second movie to start with Paris, start with a Superman action scene, start with reminding everyone what Superman's here for. And here, no, just the exact opposite. Let's start with what Gus's superpower is. And that is almost the damnation of this film, is this film has its own origin story, it's the origin story of Gus. Like so many of these other superhero movies we've reviewed, so much time is spent on the villain, although Gus is a anti-villain? Is that even a term? But <laughs> so much time is spent on the villain that it is to the detriment of our hero. It's not spending time on the villain.
3: I'd be fine with them spending time on the villain. It's spending time on the wacky sidekick truly we don't have a villain in this movie there's not a super villain for him to fight until the last 10 minutes of the movie
2: maybe Pryor just wanted to feel what it was like to be christopher reeve and be the star of the film but not have top billing
3: (laughs) yeah i guess christopher reeve is the marlon brando i do a 10 minute cameo at the beginning (laughs) and then disappear come back for some voiceover work but it's not far (laughs) from that honestly Truly, it's shocking coming back to this. I remembered prior having an overinflated role here, but it truly is crazy how much time we spend on him and his day job antics.
1: What's funny is I watched for my research for this podcast a 1983 TV special on the making of Superman 3. It's as painful as it sounds, mm. but there was only one good thing of all of it, and it's a moment caught on camera when Pryor and Reeve are filming a scene together. And Pryor improvised every line. Like, every take was different. So any of his jokes and things, it's all Prior. Well, there's a moment where Reeve has to walk off screen, and Prior has to improv, and then Reeve comes back. And then he comes back, and he's, like, lost. He's like... What'd you do, you scene-stealer, you? Ha 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 ha! It's like, yeah, you're laughing. You know what's happening. You see it happening. And you are powerless, Superman, to do anything about it. (laughs) I'm really wondering, I put the question out last week, I'm going to ask it again this week. Does
3: Reeve want to be here? Is he wishing that he had mutinied with Brando and Hackman and all the others? The fact that we have a storyline in which his character sheds the goody image, the fact that for half the movie he pulls a disappearing act, the fact that he was doing other movies like Monsignor and Death Trap that really challenged his goody image, I get the sense that he was starting to be resentful about what being typecast as Superman had been.
1: All I could find is that after this film came out, he said that the producers ruined Superman 3 by turning it into a Richard Pryor comedy. Mm. He said the only saving grace of this film is the junkyard scene, which we'll talk about. But I think coming into the filming, he was still very much into this. Keep in mind, he'd only been Superman for five years by the time this was released. Five years from the time the first one came out to this one, and... It was still what he was known for. Yes, agents and other advisors were telling him to take counter-type roles, but this was his bread and his butter, and he was loving being Superman. He was really enjoying it. By the same token, it was going a bit to his head. I saw in this behind-the-scenes, I guess I found two pieces of useful information. They hooked up a flying rig, and Lester was there saying, let's film it, and Reeve looked at it and went, no, that will not work. This is not how Superman flies. We're going to have to find another way, and left. (laughs) Well, he would
3: be the expert at this point. Remember, Lester had only made half a movie. Reeve's been there the whole time. I guess that he did feel like he knew the character better than the director would, and he probably did. Honestly, I would trust his instincts more than I would Lester. With where Superman should be. We needed more Reeve here. Good, bad, and different. We just needed
1: more scenes with him in it. And I think this film may be what soured him on it. After this film, he said he was completely done and he would never be Superman again. Mm. We'll talk about that next week. But here, I think he was happy to be here. If he would have had his way, he wouldn't have been quite such a co-star. Yeah, it is his first time getting top billing. And yes, this movie is all about prior. Superman finally gets something to do after leaving town. His whole Clark Kent thing in the beginning is asking for a voucher so that his company will pay him to go to his high school reunion. It's the class of 65. He
2: was 35, which means this is a 17th anniversary, which that's really weird. <laughs> Mine only do the 10s.
1: You usually
3: like the round numbers, but you know what? Reunions were all the rage. Big chill, big movie. The whole idea of baby boomers going back and looking at their indiscriminate youth and all that. And it was a big time of reflection happening right at this time. I'm down for it. I'm going to go ahead and say right now, I didn't like it as a kid. I'm really down for a storyline that just this Metropolis and looked at those years they skipped over. Superman 1 they gave him one scene in a football field out running a train and his father falling over but for the most part we never really understood what his adolescence was like on earth I want to see it and so I'm cool that they're going to make this storyline or so I think about
1: him returning to his roots
2: yeah we even find out he's returned like once before because his mom died they just throw that out in a passing line
1: I feel bad they killed her off screen yeah that was a huge mistake
2: I really thought we'd be seeing the return of the mom. Maybe she wanted
1: $10.
3: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can't imagine that her asking price was so high that they wouldn't. But then again, why not chunk them? I mean, that's what they're doing. <laughs> Jimmy, we supposedly tagging along. And then they come up with this contrived chemical fire to break his leg and send him on his way. Why even bring him? If you weren't going to bring him all the <laughs> way, why bring him halfway there for a bus ride and then send him back to Metropolis? It wouldn't make sense for him to go to a reunion that wasn't his high school. They needed
2: pictures.
3: Yeah, he's just a damsel in distress. And since (laughs) Lois is going to the Bahamas, they needed to have (laughs) him fall and break his leg, I guess.
2: That's exactly what it is. He plays the lowest role here. This is what she would be doing. Like we saw her do in Paris. She'd be sneaking into the fire and trying to get that story and getting caught. Yeah, he is doing the lowest role.
1: The funny thing is, I really wanted to see him in Smallville because I would have liked to have seen Clark. With a friend from his adult life who he could confide in and talk to. Maybe I want Mad About You Smallville edition. But (laughs) this is where I see it going. And so when Jimmy breaks his leg, I'm disappointed that we're not going to get the road trip movie I've always hoped for. I didn't hope for that,
3: but the whole point of this setup is to give us a big Superman moment. He does set up a pipe that gets some people off of a burning bridge, and he does lift half a lake up and bring the rain down to put it out before the acid overheats. For some
2: acid that was going to take out the eastern seaboard, if it got too hot. (laughs)
1: And, I'm sorry, this is five years after the first movie, but the effects seem ten years behind the first movie. Agreed. All the innovation. I believed a man could fly in 1977. Here, I don't believe that a man could fly nor do I believe he's carrying something the size of a lake. It is horribly matted, horribly done. 2001 has better special effects than what we're seeing here, and that was in the 60s. They didn't just cheap out on the cast, they cheaped out on the effects budget on this and it so shows they got lazy is what they did they said we have superman we don't need it to look good anymore
2: i think you're right with some of the effects arnie yeah that lake looks awful some of the rig work when he's flying looks a lot better than that final fight in metropolis in superman 2
3: no arnie is right the actual special effects Not the rigging or anything they do in camera, but the visual effects are horrible in this film. Almost to an embarrassing state. I'd say they were embarrassing, but I know we have Superman 4 to go, so I'll save that word for later.
2: (laughs) And Supergirl. Oh,
1: yeah. And Steel. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) And, Stuart, you say this scene is here just to give Superman an action scene, but really, this scene is here... To set up Chekhov's acid boil.
3: (laughs) It does do that. I didn't know they were coming back to this. I got to say, I thought this was a completely wasted, oh, fake catastrophe. But yes, it is important that we understand that there are these acid in vials that cannot overheat or they turn into clouds that eat anything.
1: These are so horribly set up. Watching it this time, I'm like, why are they talking so much about this acid? And when it comes back at the end, I'm like, okay, now I understand why they're doing this. But the audience for which this is aimed, which is quite obviously very young children like we were, Stuart, in theaters when we saw this, wouldn't remember two hours later, hey, there was this acid mentioned two hours ago and never since.
2: Yet, it's not a deuce ex machina like we got in the first two films. There's no spinning the earth around. There's no memory-sucking kisses. For all the faults of this movie, they do use a storytelling element that the other two were lacking. Okay.
3: (laughs) I guess if you want to be complimentary, that's a nice way of saying it. I would say that these screenwriters haven't gotten too much better than what they did the last time. There's still no good with endings, but okay, whatever. It is what it is. We have the moment. Jimmy's out of there. We get to Smallville. I want to see this movie. I want to see Lana Lang. Annette O'Toole. This would shape her career forever. Who is this person that you keep calling
1: as if it's someone that I should know?
2: You obviously don't watch Smallville.
1: Yes, because of this role, she ended up playing Ma Kent on Smallville for the entire nine or ten season run. Oh, I never could sit through that show, sorry.
2: So she goes from a love interest of Superman's to his mother. Very Freudian. (laughs) She aged.
3: Yeah. (laughs) She didn't stay young forever. Okay, well, good for her, I guess, but never liked this performance. Never really got what was appealing about her. I warmed up to Lois. I didn't get it at first. She was kind of off-putting and what have you. But at the end of the day, by Superman 2, I really did want them to work it out. Here, eh, I can see that she sees him as a lost opportunity because she thinks he went and made good in Metropolis and she stayed on the farm. But I'm not sure that she really loves him. She just loves the idea of escaping her dead-end life and her drunken... Is this her ex-boyfriend? Who was Brad to her back in the day? I remember he made her get into a car to go listen to records, but I never really knew whether they... Did they marry? Is Ricky his kid? What's the backstory here?
1: Ricky's not his kid that I get. Ricky is the kid of somebody who is dead or gone or something. (laughs) And Brad is the high school boyfriend who's still living on the high school glories.
3: Yeah, I get that. That's pretty loud and clear. Is The fact that he never went beyond his bowling trophies and his football jock image. He just didn't succeed in the adult world. And so now he is a security guard for a a computer company that mans a weather satellite. It's all very convenient (laughs) when they want to bring in the Gus plot in a little bit.
2: I do like the thing with Lana is that she's interested in Clark. Again, going back to some of the symmetries we've seen in this film, Lois is all about Superman. Lana is all about Clark. I don't even know if she knows that much about Superman. Probably just read about him in the paper, saw him on the news. I do like that idea of, hey, let's change this love story into something about the opposite identity here.
1: I like that, but I hate her. I think I liked her as a kid, but watching this movie as an adult, she's pathetic she's sitting there on the farm her entire life is being defined by whether or not she has a man and she doesn't have one And because she's a single mom yes this is 1983 and maybe things weren't as progressive as they are now but because she's a single mom Brad is calling her up on the phone going I'm the best you'll ever do you better appreciate me woman and she's thinking He's right. And Clark is her salvation. She is completely defined by her relationships. Does she love Clark or does she just love not Brad? Yeah,
3: I get the sense that it's about escaping
1: Smallville. It's truly her
3: dilemma and her character struggle. And the fact that her success story is that she ends up being a secretary. Well, yeah, it was 1983. What can you say?
1: And she starts off as a secretary, she just is now a secretary in a larger city. Yes, the big apricot. Yes.
2: I think the point is that Clark inspires her to move on, to get out of there. Isn't that the story? You get stuck in these small towns and you become like Brad, you become the alcoholic, reliving your high school fantasies. He helps her, he inspires her to escape that. Sometimes you become a podcaster.
3: (laughs) And sometimes you move to a big city and it's not like all the doors swing open for you. It's a very novel idea to think that, oh, my life will be perfect when I move to the big city. But she ought to be thinking about her kid. Her kid is having fainting spells. No one ever seems to know why, but he just collapses in the middle of a cornfield during a picnic and is almost chopped up by a combine.
2: I thought
1: there was a rock there. There's a rock. He hit his head. It's not shown, but he's bleeding from the head and there's a rock and he's been tripped by the dog a couple times. Oh, I assumed
3: he had a medical condition.
1: Like he was allergic to something or something. I'm like,
3: (laughs) would someone please turn their x-ray vision and find out what's going on? (laughs) (laughs) No. (laughs) I
2: just thought it was so selfish
3: that she was worried about moving to the city while her child is having (laughs) epileptic seizures or whatever.
2: (laughs) No, he's just a klutz. So why not move to the city where you get that old slapstick opening where everything's a klutz Rube goldberg device, yeah.
1: Maybe he'll fall on the subway tracks like the cop in the first movie. Now, I'm not a fan of this relationship. I actually like the performance Annette O'Toole is giving, and yeah, I never warmed to Margot Kidder. I like Annette O'Toole better, but the way her character is written, I don't like Lana Lang
2: more than Lois Lane. Does Clark have a fetish for alliterative L names? He actually does. This is a common thing in the comic books that his love interests are always LLs. In fact, there's a mermaid that falls in love with him named Lori Lamaris. <laughs> this, yes, this is going back to the way comic books were done in the forties and fifties. It's a common theme.
3: Okay. It's kind of funny in a quirky old fashioned sense of it. Lana here doesn't really have enough screen time to merit any feeling I have. Lois was at least part of the adventures. She was brought into the major storylines with Superman 2. Here, Lana's storyline is its own thing. She never gets involved with the supercomputer. The closest they come to that is that when the supercomputer starts sucking the power later in the film, she's on a train and it goes dark. And she and her kid have to sit in a dark subway system for a while. But she's never really in danger It's its own thing. It's poorly integrated with the rest of the movie.
1: Well, I would say more than worrying about his epileptic seizures. I would worry because little Ricky's a lying crap. He is a user. He finds out Clark knows Superman. Can I have an autograph? Takes the autograph to school. He's my best friend. He's coming to my birthday. Yeah, this never goes wrong for the little kid who lies in school. Wait, Superman shows up? (laughs) They mention that he's small, he's unpopular,
3: he falls over a lot. He can't bull. Yeah, he's a nerd in a time when being a nerd was a truly bad thing. Now it's like, oh, I'm a geek, that's cool. No, in the 80s, being labeled a nerd was an exceedingly painful, shameful Scarlet A that he had to weigh. So Superman is rescuing him in his own way that he can. He is saving him from the bullies that we probably should have seen to establish that better.
1: And again, I ask. After Superman 2, should Clark Kent be allowed to romance anyone ever, or is it just the ultimate cocktease? I
3: think it works for here, as you pointed out before, because she loves the man that's earthbound. She doesn't love the flying and the superpowers and the front, as it were, even though that's kind of truly who he is. Normally, you're like, oh, I like the man for who you truly are. She likes the lie. (laughs) She likes the (laughs) lie of Clark Kent, but it's because he's more humble and less ostentatious that it's a charm for him. It's like, oh, wow, I don't have to be turned up to 11 in order for someone to care for me. I am not invisible when she is around. She can see who she thinks I am, even though I'm not. <laughs> I don't know. It's a weird relationship, but I kind of <laughs> like, it. I like that dynamic, if not the way it plays out with these actors. But, again, let us not forget that this is a Richard Pryor movie, and that he <laughs> has been discovered by his boss. He's driving around in convertibles and spinning his half cents unwisely. It's drawn attention, and rather than firing him and prosecuting him, they're promoting him to go hack. Is this a rival company's weather satellite? It's all very nebulous here, because these people will ultimately be the ones that build the supercomputer, but for the time being, they're rivals.
2: Wheat King, it's owned by the Websters, but it's far enough, it's distanced enough that they could use that to hack in. They don't want him hacking in from their main corporate office, because then it's too obvious that they're involved.
3: Does he have to break in under the guise of getting Brad drunk?
2: But then you wouldn't get that hilarious scene of him in a foam cowboy hat for some reason.
3: I'll give you that's kind of fun. It's one of the few times where I feel like the prior magic is working at PG levels, but...
2: But he doesn't walk in with that hat. That hat's just sitting around somewhere for him to put right. on.
3: He came prepared. But it is what it is. But again, it is another kind of go-on-too-long scene of comedy and slapstick in which, yeah, he hacks into a computer... They don't need to build a supercomputer. It already exists. This thing is making ATM spit out. Bloomingdale's checks are coming out in error. (laughs) You got the whole coffee.
2: I love it when the crosswalk sign guys fight. The red light and the green light battle.
3: That is a true Hard Day's Night moment there. That is exactly the kind of humor (laughs) he used with the Beatles.
1: I was getting a Chaplin vibe back with the ATM spitting out the money and the guy shoving it in his pants and kissing it.
3: But all of this is so that they ultimately can control the weather. The idea is that a weather satellite can control the climates.
2: Yes, this is like a Doppler 5000. This is a satellite they use to like let you know if it's going to rain or not. But if you just switch a few wires, it's a weather dominator. (laughs) It's straight from G.I. Joe. You can control. In this universe, this is how computers work. They can do anything. And let's keep in mind, okay, 1982,
1: 1983, no internet, sorry, Al Gore hasn't built it yet, (laughs) and we're not even at war games yet, and yet, with this computer, he's controlling ATMs, he's controlling payroll systems, he's controlling crosswalk signs, he is able to control satellite systems with what looks like an IBM PC Jr., We believe it as children, and I
3: would dare say, Arnie, at the time, part of your involvement with getting into computer programming, caring about the movement, was you believed that it would give that power to you. We believe that computers could control the world in this way if you knew the
1: code. And what shows the mindset of computers so well is when you see Gus at his day job, the walls are lined with the giant boxes with the reel-to-reel tapes, and there's a space shuttle hanging from the ceiling. Only NASA would have this many computer programmers, but this version of NASA is owned by Ross.
3: Yeah, he already sort of has a monopoly on anything. We don't get a sense of any of his rivals or whatever. He is a very generic tycoon. You gave him compliments earlier as being some great conception of what Lex Luthor should be. I'm not getting it off this guy. I think he's very boring. He's kind of like a Donald Trump. Blowhard, has too much money, is bored, is creating problems just so that he can have even more wealth than he already has.
2: Oh, come on. What's not great about, hey, I want to take over the coffee market by destroying Columbia? That's how I'm going to get ahead. That's not traceable at all.
1: (laughs) And then Superman fixes it, but off screen in a line of dialogue. Well, this is what got Richard Pryor the job, was basically what he's doing on the roof there when he's describing Superman stopping the rainfall is what Richard Pryor did on Carson. And I guarantee you, Pierre was there like, you know, if we just have Pryor say it, it's cheaper.
3: (laughs) We need Superman to have a big battle at this point in the thing. There are Daily Planet employees that have taken a vacation. They're in a church that's being ripped up by tornadoes, earthquakes, you name it. Every natural disaster possible. We need to see Superman come in and save them. We need that moment right now very badly.
2: But we get about 10 seconds of him. I guess he just evaporated the moisture off of every coffee bean in Columbia. That's kind of the image we get. You know, coffee is roasted. I thought he was roasting the <laughs> beans and saving them that effort.
3: what he just do in a flyby, right? And he didn't do anything.
2: <laughs> no, he's standing on the ground. He is like taking his time wandering through Colombia, drying off each bean. Bean by bean. What? Wow. <laughs>
1: and you know, he's got super speed. Why didn't he just grind them and put them in cans while he's there? <laughs> this movie though is one step away. I'm surprised he didn't look over and see Juan Valdez with the pony.
2: But this is when we get the, I think, the most notorious scene. Like, the scene that defines Superman 3 is, like you said, Stuart, when Richard Pryor, as Gus, is recounting what Superman did. He puts on the pink tablecloth. He gets on the skis. He skis off the building, onto the street, and lives. This is, like... The notorious scene. This is the one of the scenes that sticks out of my mind. This is the reason I thought, oh, I can never go back to this film. This is why everyone says it's awful, because of Richard Pryor skiing off a building.
1: Really, it is bad. When you start lampooning your character, and in 1983, I could think of little worse to do than dress your hero in pink. This is pretty dastardly to make an official film.
3: Yeah, I didn't remember any of this. I can honestly say I don't have any recollection of any of these scenes existing. The only thing I remember Gus actually doing is what he does next, where he reprograms that satellite to look out into space, look at the particles of Krypton. Everyone knows that Krypton was a planet and they could have seen it with our technology of the 1980s. And that with this super powerful telescope, he's able to look at the properties of what's left of the planet.
2: Not a telescope, Stuart. This is the weather satellite. (laughs) It not only creates hurricanes, but it can analyze elements in the far, vast distances of space.
1: On a planet that was destroyed thousands of years ago. Or three. We don't know. (laughs) It's a nebulous
3: timeline. But anyway, the point being is this is the plot I remembered. Is that let's create kryptonite and i kind of like it i like this idea of they create a kryptonite that is almost right but he has to throw in tar they throw those cigarette advertisers under the bus this time by showing you that nicotine very bad thing
1: i have to ask this is my turn to ask a question because i can't find out why is this kryptonite green and not red because this here is instantly introducing a red kryptonite plot. Now I remember watching the Superman cartoons as a kid. Red kryptonite and Superman has six arms. Red kryptonite and Superman has amnesia. Red kryptonite does the weird stuff. This kryptonite needed to be red.
2: Arnie, it's not just red kryptonite. There is a rainbow array of kryptonite. There's black kryptonite, which has a similar effect as it does in this film. There's the red kryptonite that does something different every time for a couple of hours. There's gold kryptonite that will take away his powers. There is every color under the rainbow of kryptonite, each having a different effect on them.
3: I think they did it green because that was what, as someone not a comic book fan, would associate with kryptonite. It's not kryptonite if it's not green. If they produced something and it was purple... Well, you know, they would have screwed up if they bring something and it's green. It makes me think, oh, they got it right. This will have the effect when he drives in there and does his whole general patent routine delivering Superman, what he thinks will be a poison. I think it might work. I believe it could work because it looks like the kryptonite we saw in the first Superman movie.
2: And Gus has to think it's real kryptonite. I mean, they don't know it's bad until later on. I'd love to see, and you say you don't really like Richard Pryor. You don't think his comedy works, Stuart. I love that. They just send this off to the lab to get made and a scientist in a white coat comes in and is like, here's that element you ordered. Here's that compound you ordered. And I love Richard Pryor's like really scared to take it. And he's like, well, what am I worried about? I'm human. He does have these little moments where I think the comedy really works.
1: Yeah. Pryor is dominating this film, but at no point does Pryor annoy me. I'm going to say that. I don't like how omnipresent he is, but when you've got things going on around here, like we've talked about, the guy shoving the grapefruit into his wife's face, that stuff annoys me. Pryor just is Pryor. He is consistent, and he's semi-amusing 100% of the time.
2: And his best scene comes because of this. Like you said, Stuart, General Patton.
3: This is the best scene for him? Yeah.
2: Oh come on. He comes on there praising the plastic industries. You said he improved his lines, Arnie. I gotta believe that this is what he's doing. It's such a crazy monologue he's given here. I I love this stuff. The America is built on plastic. I love this whole scene.
3: I kinda didn't even pay attention to what he was saying, honestly. It just kind of rolled right off of me.
2: Oh, come on, when he says, we cannot afford a chemical plastic gap. This is good stuff.
1: Okay.
3: (laughs) It's
2: okay.
1: I'm amused. What I like is the whole general thing is it feels like Richard Pryor doing a riff on Eddie Murphy. This felt like an Eddie Murphy gag. And earlier, when he's getting Brad drunk, he actually used Eddie Murphy's white guy voice. I know that Murphy was heavily inspired by Pryor. Maybe Pryor got there first, but for what I know Pryor for, this felt like... A bit of a Murphyism.
3: Pryor was Eddie Murphy prior to Eddie Murphy being Richard Pryor. <laughs> Think
2: on that one. <laughs> That's not confusing.
3: <laughs> but this is where the movie goes, quote unquote, dark. This is the part where they try to regain some semblance of this being a legitimate superhero movie. Superman gets evil and does terrible things like makes the Leaning Tower of Pisa stand up straight.
2: Which I did not
1: get as a kid. I'm like, he fixed the building. (laughs) What I didn't get as an adult is why they just had two guys, a blue screen, and some balloons. (laughs) Isn't that how it is over there? Didn't
3: somebody (laughs) want to take a vacation to actually go to Italy? I mean, man, it would have helped here.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but then they would have had to still have a blue screen to straighten that tower. That's true. True enough. I'll give this movie credit. It gave me the impetus to wiki the Leaning Tower of Pisa to see how much longer it was going to be standing. They reinforced it in the late 20th century.
3: Okay, well, good to know. I haven't made it there yet. But these are bits, but even in these dark moments, I'm getting comedy. Blowing out the Olympic flame,
1: that's comedy. Was it even the Olympic flame? That was something. It wasn't an
2: Olympic year. It's supposed to be. Okay. Well, they also have 17th anniversary reunions, so... You're saying comedy, and definitely, yes, straightening the Leaning Tower of Pisa is comedy. But there's some dark stuff here. The scene that he has with Lana when she gets the call and she's like, Hey, this truck's hanging off a bridge. Why don't you go save that? Dude, this is like creepy, leering, perverted man. Is he going to rape her? Seeing the way this (laughs) is staged, he sits too close to her. There is a creepy vibe. And I don't know if Reeve wanted to channel that dark side, but he does it well in some of these scenes. I don't know
1: if it was going for that or if they were just trying to equate Superman to Brad. I think that that's Brad's point in this movie is to show what a drunken perv could be and then turn Superman into that drunken perv. He just needed the mustache.
3: Yeah, I wanted Superman to be worse than what he is here. Yeah, I get what you're saying. It is a little unnerving that he is going to make time with Lana while people's lives are hanging in the balance. And he does go to the bridge, and it's too late, and it falls. I didn't think he was going to take any advantage of this woman. It doesn't play as perverted to me. That's a step further than I'm willing to say here. But it shows moral decay is happening here. And he starts to grow the stubble, and he starts to drink alcohol. And the
1: costume designer added black dye to his outfits. Yeah, it's a muted colors.
2: I love to think of this as just like Superman not giving a damn, not doing his laundry. His colors are just getting darker. I wish they would have put some like sweat stains underneath the pits. I do love his slow transformation in this.
1: I don't think it's supposed to be dirt. His boots get darker, too. I think it's supposed to just be subtle, he's a darker character now kind of thing.
2: No, I get that. I just like to think of it as him not doing his laundry.
1: <laughs> well, yeah, he's evil now. I would like that, too, if he spilled something on it. Well, he
3: did spill a lot of oil. He did, like, rip open a whole oil tanker that refused to obey Ross's command to go to the middle of the Atlantic. Honestly, does no one believe in carrier pigeon? Can no (laughs) one get a message to all of these ships that we do not want you to sit here
1: with the entire world supply of oil? And more, the ships aren't wondering how long they have to sit out there when they're going to get supplies. What is the plan? The plan is he puts all the boats in the middle of the ocean, but it's not like he's taking over oil. He's creating an oil drought so that he is the only supply, but eventually these boats will reach port. It's a very short-term solution, it seems.
3: Yeah, it just sort of mirrors the real problems of the energy crisis, which at this point, they're five, six years beyond. It's not even topical. It's people thumbing through old newspapers and going, what can we do
2: to show a bad guy? Yeah, but after he causes his oil spill, he totally goes and bangs Lorelai, doesn't he? Oh, Yeah. This is the darkest moment. It's kind of funny in the
3: way how clownish his seduction routine is. He just kind of falls on top of her. I don't know if that's a kiss or not. They stage it in such a way that it largely shrouded from view. I don't think they wanted kids to figure out what was going on. But as an adult, yeah, it's a little disconcerting. We wanted him to end up with Lana or Lois, but not Lorelai.
1: Again, another L name. What I do like is later on when he finally recovers, he uses the shaggy, it wasn't me defense.
3: Yeah, that's a likely story. <laughs> yeah, that will hold up in court. <laughs> is The other guy, uh-huh. But you get my point. Wouldn't it have been more effective if maybe he teamed up with Ross? Instead of giving Ross the freedom to come up with this cockamamie scheme, maybe he was actually doing things for Ross. He was the henchman. He was a bad guy. They really did not want to sell that too hard. They really were afraid. And indeed, I think even as a kid, it was upsetting to think of someone that's so morally pure as Superman going to a dark side.
2: I kind of like this apathetic Superman, though, that just doesn't care. He goes to Lorelai when she's on the Statue of Liberty. I'm not here to save you. I'm just here to look at your cleavage or for whatever reason even goes up there. But when he's sitting in that bar, just like drowning shots and flicking peanuts at bottles, there's something I think more unsettling seeing Superman like that than if I was watching him help some evil henchman around the world.
1: And I want to give some serious props here to why that is. Christopher Reeve is again pulling this off. I didn't realize before we started this retrospective series that Christopher Reeve was a really good actor. But he made me believe a man could fly when we watched the 79 film. Here he's making me believe a man can be a douche. I'm completely going with it. His body language, his facial expressions. Yes, he's aided by five o'clock shadow and some makeup and a slightly different hairstyle. It's parted on the other side. But his swagger, his sneer, maybe he's just showing the contempt he feels for Superman fans at this point. Or at least what Lester's done with the script. (laughs) Yeah, I'm really liking his performance as evil Superman. Like is a strong word here. Oh, no, come on. You don't like this? You don't like his performance. You may not like what's going on in the movie, but his performance of this.
3: Ugh, it's okay. I can't get much more enthusiastic than that. I guess it's okay. It's difficult for me to separate his performance from how muted the character feels in that they want it to be dark, and yet it's not dark. It's a strange interlude in the movie that culminates in the weirdest scene maybe of any Superman movie. <laughs>
1: I don't know, we haven't gotten to four or Steel yet, but... I remember this. This was my memory going in. Well, I have one other. Yes. But my primary memory of this movie is Superman vs. Clark Kent in a junkyard. I complained about the special effects in this film earlier. I will give them some props for their split screen here. It was seamless. I've seen much worse split screen in later films. So what they cheaped out on earlier, at least they did really good in the Clark versus Superman fight here. At no point do you think it's one person grappling somebody that's not there. And it's a well done fight for a one man show.
3: Yes, technically, they pulled it off, and it is Reeves' maybe best moment in the movie as far as selling the mood of the scene.
1: It's intense.
2: There's a lot I like about this scene. One, this junkyard clears out. Evil Superman lands. All the workers run away. I like the ambiguity here. We do see Superman versus Clark, but... Because there's no one around to actually witness this. This could be something going on in his mind. This is just how they're portraying it. There's that leeway there. And I also like the psychological underpinnings here. Evil Superman wants to destroy his good self. And who comes out? Clark Kent. I like a lot of the ideas they're going with here.
1: I agree. And again, Reeve performing as two totally different characters right there in the same place. And making me believe both. I don't get if this is really happening, though. Has Superman split into two beings, or is this an inner turmoil personified? I don't know. It's very trippy.
3: And what is its relationship to fake kryptonite? Because there is a reason why he's turned bad. It isn't that he had a crisis of conscience and didn't believe that the humans were worth saving anymore. He's poisoned. So how is he going to get poison out of his system? I think I would like this scene a whole lot more... If it were set at the Fortress of Solitude. Setting it in a junkyard is really a random place to do it. Why not have him go into his home where he broods, where he thinks on these issues? We haven't seen that set. Did it not exist anymore?
1: It was in London and he blew it up at the end of the Donner cut.
3: Oh, London. That's right. They're in Canada. That's why we didn't see it. Instead, we get a snow chalet on top of a building. I would much have preferred this moment happening at the
1: Solitude Fortress. And I also want to know, you say he's poisoned. Is it that he had one contact with the rock and that has permanently poisoned him? And this is him fighting off the poison? Is he being re-exposed? It's not like he's wearing the rock like a Flavor Flav
2: necklace. It makes about as much sense as Superman 2 did where he lost his powers and then was able to get him back. We've had these moments in all of these films, I think, so far, where we had the trippy 12-year space school and these things where you either go with it or you don't. What I really like, though, is at the end, after Clark wins, you've had this muted suit, Clark opens the shirt, and he's got the bright suit again. I think this is more like, I don't want to say poetry, but it's more artistic than a literal thing going on here, and I like what they're doing with it.
3: Yeah, I think they've always had these kinds of moves, and I'm more or less okay with it. I would be better with it if it weren't motivated by Ricky getting out of the taxi cab and telling him he still believes him. You'll be great again. Maybe Ricky believes that, but I know we got Supergirl next. I don't know that this (laughs) franchise is going to get back to where 2 was here. I'm not loving when he's returned and restored. If It'd be one thing if he was restored to kick ass, but this... Act 3 Climax is maybe the worst part of the movie.
2: You're not down with a supercomputer that can do anything and defend against anything? The sad
1: thing is, it's like five stories tall. My iPad probably has faster processing power.
2: <laughs> well, that is the sign of the times. I love that the plans were written on some napkins and cigarette packs.
1: <laughs> well, that is the Wozniak way. Stewart compared him to Steve Jobs. No, I think he's more like Woz. But... Yes, they build this giant computer, which is not really much of a computer. It's got screws and
2: huge capacitors. In 1983, that was a huge computer.
1: Yes, when I was seven, I was awed. I wanted that computer. I wanted my godfather to build that for me out of parts in his basement.
2: (laughs) I would have hated having to be your parental figure, Arnie. Oh, you can't even imagine. (laughs) I saw it in a movie. Make it.
3: I will tell you stories (laughs) offline about such a thing and all the things that Jim was commissioned. If he were Leonardo da Vinci, he couldn't have done half the things that Arnie expected. (laughs) But yet he'd promised them. Yes, he was very generous with you and your Power Man schemes to take over the playground.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And like you said, Stuart, I don't know why he needed this. I guess it's so he didn't have to grift anymore and do his little schemes with the big foam hats. But... This computer can do anything. It can figure out what the unknown piece of kryptonite is and make a laser of it. It can give you an Atari 5200 interface to shoot missiles at
2: Superman. Four bits better than the Atari 2600.
3: Yes, if only the (laughs) game looked like that. I remember being so delighted with those graphics where it's the scrolling adventure and Superman's running the rockets. Those were awesome in 1983. They were fantastic. The game
1: you would play at home, miserable.
2: I had the 2600 Superman game. It was bad. (laughs) I think the plot was you had to put a bridge together.
1: (laughs) There was another one where you did fly against missiles. But
3: not the 2600 version. It was like Lois kept kissing you and you flew Crooks to the jail. I guess. It was all very confusing. I had a lot of 2600 games and it was not in heavy rotation. But it was the video game era, and they did want to sell that. That is what they're selling here. The super villain is a supercomputer. The bigger, the better. The fact that he can turn the fight sequences into arcade adventures, that's supposed to be awesome in 1983. James Bond did it, Never Say Never Again. And come to think of it, Brad was in that movie too.
1: I was in love with this computer. Stuart, when we were in theaters watching this, I imagined that I probably had just a joygasm at this supercomputer. I wanted to be Richard Pryor, or at least I wanted to be Scotty Schwartz, who would hang out with Richard Pryor and get to use the supercomputer for nefarious things, right?
3: Yes. I don't remember a lot of joy, though, when the computer starts implementing its plans for the humans.
1: Yes, Richard Pryor decides he's going to help Superman and cuts the power. Whoa, 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 whoa. Cuts
2: the power? You mean he undoes a screw? Yes, which cuts the power. (laughs) For some reason. (laughs) He built it.
3: We cannot understand the minds of geniuses, all right? We're not (laughs) capable of understanding Richard Pryor, computer genius.
2: I mean, the computer that defends against anything, you pull a screw out to turn it off. But the computer wants to live. It has become sentient. You said there was this idea to do a Brainiac story. Brainiac, alien, AI, cyborg type thing. I really feel like you could almost call this thing Brainiac and get away with it. Brainiac was a alien computer that was sentient and would fight Superman and that's what we get here, more or less.
3: Was he the Superman with this really strong jaw lines that was like, I want to kill you? No, that was Bizarro. Oh, okay. Well, I don't know what Brainiac is. He was never on the Super Friends then, I take it. Yes, he was.
1: Maybe we'll get to Legion of the Superheroes someday and you'll find out. I don't know if he was in that. But the computer Isn't enough on its own. It's going to suck power from the entire nation and it needs a henchwoman. Vera, who we've not really talked about. There's a lot of jokes about her being Ross's mother or Ross's father, even. There's a lot of transgender jokes going on here with her.
3: I believe the whole thing is women are only important if they're beautiful. Laura Lee is a knockout and everyone notices her. Vera is ugly, therefore she is castigated. Even though they're both equally smart women that have to play down their intelligence. It's all very sexist, but yes, continue.
1: Yeah, Lorelei is reading Kant and hiding it in Vogue magazines, whereas Vera is actually spouting off more knowledge than she really has.
3: Yes, Richard Pryor built the supercomputer, but she's known all along how it works, and is trying to manipulate it, and then it turns the tables. And Arnie turns from the screen. I loved this moment as a childhood. If nothing else, that I saw such an incredible reaction out of you.
1: The computer turned evil, wrapped her in wires... I was a pretty sophisticated seven-year-old. I was. I understood makeup. I understood movies weren't real. To a point.
2: (laughs) This is scary stuff. I know where you're going, Arnie. I closed my eyes when I first saw this.
1: The stuff hitting her face is pretty horrific for a seven-year-old. But when she opens her eyes (laughs) and metal has gone under her eyelids... I thought you couldn't put makeup on eyes, so that had to be real. So is this what started your eye thing? It's eye phobia. Arnie had it. There was also an episode of Doctor Who,
3: a very bad one, I would add, where they fight an <laughs> anti-gravity monster that every time it brushed up against someone, their eyes went pink, and they stuck these little, like, diodes into people's eyes that clearly were just contacts that glowed. Turn around bright eyes that Bonnie Tyler Any <laughs> Anytime there were bright eyes, Arnie would just develop this phobia. He
1: was terrified. I think it all goes back to the Hulk. I really think it all goes back to the Hulk. (laughs) But here, this freaked me out. Yeah, crazy out.
3: Like, wanting to leave the theater out. The mood changed. We were enjoying the movie, and then it was, we need
1: to get out of here. Truth. Dead truth. I had nightmares about this. I would go to sleep and dream that this cyborg woman was killing me, and she was in charge, and she was ordering the computer to kill me. (laughs) Like, for a year, I was afraid of my pool. We had a swimming pool, and my mother would tell me to go turn on and turn off the pump. There were wires back there. I would flip that switch and run like I was going into a nest of snakes, because if I left my hand there too long flicking that switch, the wires would wrap around it and get under my eyeballs.
3: Yes, this was a very intense phobia. I tried not to take too much delight in it. It was a (laughs) shockingly human moment for you. I had never seen you freak out to the degree that you did in that theater. What about the rest of it? I guess the damage had already been done after she got the metal stuck on her face. But come on, that wig, when she actually walks out of it, less scary. You got to admit, once she's out of the computer, you can handle what's going on here.
1: Sadly, as an adult, I see that wig and I go, I was scared of what? But as a kid, I was pissing myself in the theater and it was done. Now, I do feel justified because Pierre did say on the commentary that he's heard many people tell tales such as mine of being freaked out by robot lady here. But I thought I was the only one until this week.
2: Oh, no, that is well documented, Arnie. You are not alone. I bet. Just wait till our listeners start posting on Facebook and on the forums. Yes, if they're being truthful, lots of people are freaked out by this. Uh, yeah, it
1: scared me forever. I honestly think this is the Superman movie I've seen the least because I never wanted to return <laughs> to the horror of the silver eyes. Now I look at it, I'm like, uh, yeah, it's contact lenses. I was freaked out by Michael Jackson's thriller, too, that last scene. It is effective, but this is not maybe the best example of the scary
3: (laughs) eye contact lens craze of the early 80s.
1: No, but it was the one that got me most because I wasn't expecting it in Superman. And I figured she was dead too, but later I realized she's seen out of the robot makeup. But yeah, that fright wig is hysterical as an adult. That's just, there's no way around it. It's a stunt person in really bad makeup in a even worse wig.
3: Do we see these people again? My sense is that the battle is, okay, computers invented the Krypton laser, Richard Pryor saves the day with an axe, and then Superman runs off to get the acid and put the computer down, and the end. I don't remember seeing Robert Vaughn and Laura Lee and Vera going to jail or anything.
2: No, I think we're to assume because this computer blows up and we see Superman help Gus out from behind some rocks. I think we're to assume everyone else just died.
1: No, we see them writhing and breathing. We see them moving. After the computer blows up, we see Vera moving, and she's no longer computerized. And we see Lorelei, She had been hanging because Vera had somehow gotten Zod's point telekinesis power and (laughs) pushed her up against the wall. And we see Ross pushing out from under a rock, and they're all okay. No one died. Now, whether they were taken to jail, I think they were taken to jail. But they were all survivors of this computer travesty.
3: It doesn't really matter because we find out that Superman's whole mission in Superman 3 is to get people work. He's all about jobs. (laughs) We could use him right now, in fact. Because he'll personally fly you around for interviews where he feels like you'll best fit in. (laughs) Even if it's with some rednecks in a coal refinery with Richard Pryor. Hey, they have a computer in the back.
1: You want to work here? Um, no. (laughs) it really shows superman to be an imbecile he didn't fly him there for that reason he's just flying reeve back to metropolis and decides to stop to steal a piece of coal to create a massive freaking diamond for lana and just because he doesn't want to fly anymore gus is like yeah i'll just stay here and so he's like you could do worse than to hire gus that was kind of a funny joke that Gus had, is
3: he didn't believe a man could fly, and so he refused to get in those ridiculous H. D. Wells contraption balloon things that the other ones did. <laughs> yeah, I guess maybe that's all that it was, but man, what a weird character Gus is, and what a weird exit with this very long scene that won't end of him talking about walking to the bus. I'm like, Jesus, this has become a movie about something entirely different. <laughs>
1: And Gus ends the movie as he started it, unemployed. And Superman keeps the job
3: fair going by going back to Lana in Clark form (laughs) to give her a ring. I got to ask, are they engaged or was this just a friendship ring? What does this signify when he's giving her a big diamond ring?
2: She said she had to pawn her wedding ring for money. And I think it was just a way to make up for that. She had to give something away and he was giving her something new because she had to make that sacrifice.
3: Okay. And then he's getting her a job at the Daily Planet, getting Perry White some coffee. Jimmy will be impressed if no one
1: else. (laughs) Yeah, I'm sorry. If I was Lana and somebody gave me this like 15 carat diamond and I just moved to a big city, I would instantly pawn that too to buy a house.
3: Lois comes back. She's been in the Bahamas. I thought for sure maybe they'd work her into that scenario when all the ships were in the Bahama region. And No, she was cracking some other case. It was something about smugglers or something. We'll never know what she did for three weeks in the Bahamas.
2: That's what I love about this line Lois drops, is that she was kidnapped while in the Bahamas and cracked some case. Like, that is a very Lois thing to do. Go off for a vacation and be caught up in some adventure. She had her own Lois Lane comics at one point, where that kind of stuff happened all the time. I thought it was a funny line.
1: Hey, for all we know, Margot Kidder actually thinks she was kidnapped during (laughs) the production, and that's why she isn't in the movie.
3: Sadly, I wish we had seen that story instead of what we got.
1: Well, there's the note. Jacob Stewart, do you recommend Superman
2: 3? Jacob. I feel like I need to split apart and fight a little bit more against myself. Coming back to this and watching it again after all these years... It wasn't as bad as I thought. It wasn't as bad as I think everyone had made it out to be. Yes, it's a very different tone than what Donner did and what Lester carried on in Superman 2. I don't think you could take this as probably in that same continuity. It is a very different film. It's a Gus Gorman film. It's a Richard Pryor film, basically. The thing is, there's a lot that I like about it. I liked a lot of the Richard Pryor stuff, the humor there. I love evil Superman in this. Christopher Reeve, his acting is great, especially when he's evil. Ugh! I'm fighting it out of my mind right now, seeing who's going to get thrown in the trash compactor. There's problems here. I think the third act is bad, when they fight the supercomputer and they go and get some acid and it blows up. It's a bit of a letdown. I actually don't mind it not being so much a Superman story, because I think Richard Pryor does a pretty good job here. I'm going to give this a weak recommend, and for those of you that haven't seen it since you were kids, Yeah!
1: Somebody find the green (laughs) kryptonite that is turning Jacob into a crazy man and take it out of his house, please.
2: The pacing's not bad in this. I thought it moved along. I'm going to say, if you haven't seen this since you were a kid and you have this memory that this is the most awful thing in the world, go back and check it out. Again, this is definitely a different Superman movie. This is uh, the more comedic take of it. This is the more Silver Age thing. If you're into the comics, I could see this fitting in. So, yeah, it's a weak, weak, weak recommend, but there was enough here that I enjoyed. And yes, I get that it's totally crazy, but I don't know. That's part of its charm for me. Stuart.
3: You don't have to be Superman to read my mind. This is incredibly bad. (laughs) It is that terrible, Jacob. I had memories of thinking that this didn't work, but kind of enjoyed it as a child. It's much worse than that. I've been starting in my mind to build a correlation between this DC hero and the Batman series. And so far, Superman has been keeping up. He's been beating Batman. Yes, okay, his TV adventure wasn't so hot with the Moleman. I much prefer Adam West. But I think Superman the Motion Picture is better than Tim Burton's Batman. And I think Superman 2 is better than Batman Returns. Superman 3 is as bad as Batman forever. It may even be worse. I'll call it a draw and say that they're both incredibly terrible yuck fests that do not work as superhero movies or comedies for me. Very bad.
1: Strong not recommend. I will agree with Jacob.
2: You recommend it too. Great. (laughs) Two
1: out of three. What is happening?
2: (laughs) Oh, wait, I think I cut him off too soon.
3: Can I be Lois and get and drop out of the series for the rest? It could just be
1: you guys.
2: (laughs) Only if you put the bikini on. I'm agreeing, Jacob,
1: that this movie is not as bad as my memory of it would have me think. I came in expecting the lowest of the lowest of the lows, and I was surprised at how competent this film is. I was surprised that I was not wincing in pain and agony. As this movie went on. And really, the way the movie starts, I expected to be. With that opening credits sequence, I really expected to be in utter, utter pain for two hours. But what happens is, after the jingo bingo and the flaming penguins finally subside, God help us, Richard Pryor is the calming influence on Lester's comedic impulse. So no. It is not as bad as the rumors had made it seem. It is not as bad as I had read and not as bad as I expected. But come on, it doesn't make it a good movie. Yes, but we're not debating a
2: good movie. We're debating a recommendable movie. <laughs> and I recommend good movies.
1: Yes. So you are just telling me now you are recommending this knowing it's bad. That is what I am to take of your statement. Which we've all done, by the way. We have all
3: done that at some time or another. I definitely have said, see a movie that I know in my heart
1: isn't particularly well constructed.
2: I'm saying there is more here to enjoy than not, which makes it recommendable. That's what I mean.
1: I would disagree on the more to enjoy than not. I called out what positives I could see in this movie as I went, which is Christopher Reeve's performance as evil Superman and good Superman, and Richard Pryor having some genuinely funny ad-lib jokes. But It is the worst Reeve Superman film thus far in that it has as weak a villain as the first movie without the great mythos and origin story the first movie brought. The love story is really weak. Lana is a terrible character. Brad is a buffoon, cartoonish character. This is really becoming Batman 66. We are straying into that territory with this. It is becoming camp. And it's not funny camp. It is really lame jokes with the exception of Pryor's lines. It's certainly not recommendable. I cannot find any part of me even thinking of recommending it. It's not good. It's not worth your time. But it's not as bad as I expected. And I can see why some Superman fans might enjoy it more than the things we're going to be talking about for many, many weeks to come now. As we go deeper into the Fortress of Solitude's Crystal Library with things like Supergirl and Steel, yeah, this may be a step up from those, but a terrible film. And just not a Superman film. It's a disservice to the Superman film franchise to make him take such a backseat. And again, I blame the producers and the director, and none of them will be back again. Hopefully ever on Now Playing. <laughs> We can't be that lucky.
2: Until we do our Beatles retrospective. (laughs) Those three Musketeer
1: movies are calling. (laughs) Hey, if we avoided it for the 3D remake, then we're good. But with that, we actually are taking a break from Superman for one week, and after this week, I feel I need it. Yeah, exactly.
3: Get me to a superhero I can believe in again. And Iron Man's a good one to
1: start. So next week, we will be back with Iron Man 3, and then the Superman retrospective continues the week after that (laughs) with Supergirl. Yeah, I think this is going to be the Catwoman of the franchise. But very much in this universe, unlike Catwoman, which was a reboot, Supergirl coming out the year after this. And I had just said I wished we were gone with these producers, but no, the Salkins are back. This is a Salkin film. I'll be salking the whole podcast. Jimmy Olsen shows up. Oh,
2: good. I love him. I only have a few memories of this film, and they are not pleasant.
3: Yeah, it's something about Faye Dunaway and a giant dragon. I think I saw part of it on TV once.
1: (laughs) I've seen it a few times, so we'll be back with that in two weeks. And in the meantime, if you want more now playing... Do you want a party? Yes, our $10 donation of Evil Dead are all released, you can still donate $10 or more right now and hear our entire Evil Dead retrospective as well as World War Z later this summer, but For those who do the gold level donation of $25 or more, this Friday starts the Return of the Living Dead retrospective series. There's five movies in there. One of them actually has a Superman actress in it. I'm not going to say who. You got to donate or IMDb to find out.
3: (laughs) Brains.
1: I'm kind of looking forward to
3: this one. I couldn't regret that, but I do have
1: strong, fond memories of that first Return of the Living Dead. We do these donation drives twice a year because we have no advertisers, and what's funny is I was in the unemployment line, and I looked down at a matchbook it said, earn big money, become a podcaster, <laughs> and turned out that isn't quite the case, and so just to keep our websites going, we need money. <laughs> Yes, I'm
3: getting a few half-cent checks here, but largely, we take the funds you give us, we try (laughs) to give it back to you in this show here. Nobody's getting rich, but we are trying to always improve and give more and make bigger and better, splash your podcast. Your donations make it possible. I do not think Now Playing would exist if we did not have these donation drives.
1: I can say it wouldn't for a fact, and Now Playing is free, will always be free on Totally Free Tuesdays, but we do these extra donation shows. We are not selling podcasts, they are extra podcasts just to thank donors for your financial support of Now Playing. And also, if you enjoy the show, but you don't have the scratch for Evil Dead or Return of the Living Dead, head over to iTunes and leave us a five-star review. That helps spread word of mouth and gets more people to our show. Clicking five stars is great. Leaving a written review really helps us out a lot more. Also, come tell Jacob he's wrong on Facebook, Twitter, and the forums. Please. (laughs) Or share your childhood trauma of Robot Eyes with me. You can find links to all of that at nowplayingpodcast.com. So, Jacob Stewart, thank you for joining me. And until next week, up, up, and away!
0: I have to leave. I knew this time would come. We both knew it. The day we found you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Now Playing, and we hope you've enjoyed the show. The virtuous spirit has no need for thanks for approval, only a certain conviction that what has been done is right. Come to NowPlayingPodcast.com each week as we review another Superman movie leading up to this summer's Man of Steel.
3: Again, again! Superman's
0: bad. He was bad. In the archives at NowPlayingPodcast.com, you can hear reviews of comic book movies such as all the Batman films, Green Lantern, Catwoman, the Marvel Avengers films, and many more. we have come a long way since the old neighborhood. You can also hear our reviews of non-comic-based films, including Star Trek, Predator, James Bond, Rambo, Rocky, and more. I never thought this thing would go the distance. Find hundreds of movie review podcasts, at NowPlayingPodcast.com
2: oh, This is a very special place for me. I
0: wanted you to see it. While at NowPlayingPodcast.com be sure to join our forums where you can discuss this review with other listeners. Let's go to my place. Maybe I should change first. You can also follow Now Playing at Facebook and Twitter where the hosts post new episode announcements and written movie reviews. Why am I not reading it? The links to our social media pages can be found at NowPlayingPodcast.com.
1: Superman will be there on Wednesday, alright?
0: The city of Metropolis is generous to a fault. Support from listeners like you help keep Now Playing operating.
3: Don't tell me. He sends a check every week to his
1: sweet gray-haired old mother.
0: Actually, she's silver haired. You can find a link to donate using PayPal at the bottom of our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. Now come on, lady, hand it over. Say, Jim, boom! That's a bad outfit! You can also show your love of Now Playing Podcast by shopping in our store, where you can buy panties. Do you like pink? Coffee mugs, t-shirts, totes, boxers, teddy bears, and much more.
1: They have a wide selection.
0: You can also help out Now Playing by leaving us a five-star review on iTunes. What What more could anyone ask? A link to Now Playing's iTunes listing can be found at nowplayingpodcast.com. Now we're cooking, huh? Now Playing's Superman retrospective series is edited by Ray, Bill, Dylan, Jeff, and Arnie.
1: Your suffering will be short.
0: Mine, forever. Now Playing credit narration by Brock.
2: I do okay or what, Uncle Lex?
0: Now Playing is not affiliated with Warner Brothers Pictures. Superman is the property of DC Comics and Warner Brothers Pictures, and no infringement is intended.
1: The dude of steel. (laughs) Where are you going to get it?
0: The opinions expressed in Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Venganza Media Incorporated. Why do you say this to me? When you know, I will kill you for it. Now playing is a Venganza Media Production Copyright 2013. All rights reserved, and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated.
2: Well, I guess I'd better be going too.
1: So I'll be going.
3: See you later. I think it might have been our second movie that we ever saw together. Jaws 3D was the first, but this was probably number two. What year did this come out? Eighty three. Like Eighty three. We saw ET,
1: mother. Buster.
3: I keep forgetting that. I have no memory of that. You claim it, but I, I don't know. You think I'm lying? i don't have any memory of it i'm not saying you're lying i'm saying that when i think about movies that we saw together et was not one
2: 35th anniversary reunion i did the math i wanted to figure this out because it made no sense i'm like wait he was 30 when he came to metropolis Is a few yeah 35th anniversary i don't know do they he's, have those he's 65 <laughs> <laughs> this could
1: not be the 35th anniversary. It's the class of 65. It's like the 17th anniversary,
2: right? Excuse me, it is... let me find my notes where I did... Yeah, it's not he 35. would be 35 years old yeah, yeah. and
1: couldn't be that? the 35th anniversary. And the reason we do these donation drives is because my dogs bark, and I can't stop them, and if I have enough money, maybe I can buy a soundproof room.
3: It's too late! What Don't they go to sleep? What's it, like two in the morning? They're animals! They don't (laughs) run on the same
2: clock as we do. Yeah,
3: that's when they come alive, right?